I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Zdrasvutya and welcome to the history of Russia. This is episode 24, Dmitry Donskoy. Thanks for listening in. So, let's recap. Last time out, we covered the key events that occurred during the 13-year reign of Grand Prince Simeon, the not-so-proud, Ivan Kalita's son. And, just as a reminder, those events were a minor scuffle with Novgorod related to the collection of taxes, a major scuffle with Lithuania, the upcoming power to the west of the Ruslands, which involved some tricksy scheming on Simeon's part, which sort of worked out, but not quite in the way that he imagined it would. And then we looked at the Black Death, the pandemic that swept its way through most of Eurasia before ending up in Moscow in 1352, causing the deaths of Simeon and his sons, amongst many, many others. This week... We'll be covering the short reign of Ivan II, Simeon's brother, who had managed to survive the plague, and then we'll take a longer look at the much longer reign of Dmitry Donskoy, Ivan's son, who would have his successes in fighting against both the Mongols and the Lithuanians, and would ensure that Moscow emerged at the end of the 14th century, territorially enlarged and with its military reputation enhanced, but frustratingly with the Mongol overlordship still in situ. But before we get the ball rolling, I'm just going to muse for a while about the podcast in general. Back in February, when I started this all off with the introductory episode, I summarised what the first couple of episodes would cover. And then I said, and I'm going to use my quotation voice here, even though I'm quoting myself, which is a little bit weird. Then once I've set the scene... In subsequent episodes, I'll get going on a more detailed chronological narrative, taking us from the first proto-Russian state in the late 800s to the present day. And then once that has been completed, and at this stage I'm not sure how long it will take, 
I'll start to look at particular events in more detail, interspersed with episodes about key individuals and particular elements of Russian culture. That's the plan anyway. Totally weird. Well, uh, and it's normal voice again, I just want to restate here and now that that is all still the plan. But I still don't know how long the chronological bit is going to take. So far, we've completed approximately 500 years in 20-odd episodes. That's roughly 25 years per episode, which means with about 700 more years to go, we're looking at roughly 28 more episodes. Still with me? Good. But then, as the sources become more numerous and the characters and events become more complex and multi-layered, I reckon you could at least double that. So, and don't worry, this bit's nearly over. 56 episodes, at roughly 3 per month, that's another 18 months, which is a lot longer than I'd planned. So, in the coming months, I'm going to cover as much as I can, as quickly as I can. And then once we've reached the present day, I can then go into as much detail as I want on specific people or events, and you'll all have a solid context and foundation to work off. That's the plan anyway. But one thing you should know is that for many years now, my background has been in the exciting, dangerous world of project management. And if ever a deadline is under threat or likely to be missed, I get my excuses in early and it's never my fault. So, with that in mind, and let's hope the boss isn't listening, let's do some history of Russia. Okay, so it's 1353 and Moscow finds itself slowly recovering from the Black Death and in a somewhat precarious position, stuck between the rising power of Lithuania to the west and the soon-to-be-waning but still dangerous power of its overlords, the Mongols, to the east. Down to the south, the Byzantine Empire is in decline and there are new kids on the block, the Ottoman Turks, who will become major players in our story and are generally in the ascendancy but they'll soon have problems of their own to deal with, as will the Mongols and Moscow, in the shape of one of the greatest military commanders of all time, Timur Gokhani, better known to us as Tamerlane. And we'll be looking at all of that uh, in more detail in the next episode. Back to this episode, though. During the 1200s, the Mongol Empire had reached its apogee, Kublai Khan, another one of Genghis's grandsons, had become, em- become emperor of China, and there had even been two attempted invasions of Japan. Closer to home, and after the death of Batu Khan in 1255, the Golden Horde continued to flourish and grow rich on the back of its Rus subjects, amongst others. Its military power had peaked during the reign of Uzbek Khan, and that's between 1312 and 1341. Now, Uzbek had also converted to Islam, but from around 1360, things will start to get a bit messy and fractious. The Lithuanians, on the other hand, had started to expand their influence upon the southern and western principalities of the old Rusiskaya Zemla, We have Halic, or Galicia, as it's sometimes known, Volin, Kiev, Pereyaslavl, and Chernigov. But their expansion into the Rus lands was not all achieved by military means, and in fact, the eventual annexation of these territories 
was largely peaceful, mainly because the various Rus princes saw the increasingly powerful Lithuania as a counterbalance to the influence of Moscow and the Horde. Plus, they saw the financial advantages of not paying the hated Mongol taxes and establishing lucrative trade deals with Lithuania and other Western powers. The Lithuanians, in turn, received a limited amount of much-needed support, both financial and military, from the princes in their struggles against Moscow, the Mongols, and, importantly, the Teutonic Knights. And it's here, amongst all this, that we start to see the very beginnings of the different political and cultural entities emerging from the Ruslands that will, in the centuries to come, eventually result in the separate nation-states of Russia to the north and east, and Ukraine and Belarusia, or Belarus, to the south and west. Anyway, into this heady, volatile mix came Simeon's brother, Ivan. Now, one of the advantages of an hereditary monarchy, or a dynasty based on primogeniture, or the succession of the eldest child or next of kin, is stability. Ideally, a strong ruler invests time in showing his or her heir the ropes, and he or she does the same when they in turn get to be in a position of power, and so on and so forth, and the realm is stable, and if things go really well, it flourishes. But sometimes the next in line just isn't king, queen, or grand prince material. Either they're just not up to the job, they're not interested, they're too young, or they die too soon. And Ivan II, while certainly not the worst case example, shows what can happen if one of these situations comes to pass. Because he did very little in his six and a bit years in charge, and his contemporaries described him as a peace-loving, apathetic ruler who did nothing when, for example, Algirdas of Lithuania captured the town of Bryansk, or when Oleg of Ryazan pillaged and burnt Muscovite villages. He also briefly toyed the idea of abandoning traditional Moscow allegiance to the Mongols and allying himself with Lithuania, but he dithered and then in the end took the path of least resistance and did nothing. However, in his favour, he was a pious man and he had the support of the Orthodox Church in the shape of the new metropolitan, Alexius, Plus, he also managed to slightly extend Moscow's territory by annexing lands to the south and west. But apart from that, he did very little of note, and Moscow became, in effect, a rudderless ship drifting aimlessly in a sea of limbo. But luckily, for Moscow and us, in 1359 he died, leaving his nine-year-old son Dmitri to take charge with the help of the metropolitan Alexius as regent. And the early years of this regency saw Moscow continue to keep itself very much to itself, but they did witness the complete rebuild, this time in stone rather than wood, of the Moscow Kremlin. And the work was completed in 1367, and this was just in the nick of time, because the next year saw the start of the Lithuanian-Moscow War, or the Litovshina as it was known to the Muscovites. The key elements of these campaigns were three separate raids made by the previously mentioned Algirdas, the Grand Duke of Lithuania, 
upon the Grand Duchy of Moscow in 1368, 1370 and 1372. Now the pretext or excuse for these military operations was that Algirdas was assisting, that's assisting, the Principality of Tver in its power struggle against Moscow. But other sources see the whole thing as a straightforward Lithuanian invasion, with the simple aim being to prise Moscow away from the influence of the Horde and into their growing portfolio of Rus principalities. For whatever the reason, Algiris, who had six years earlier won an important victory over the Mongols at the Battle of the Blue Waters in the western part of modern-day Ukraine, was hearing reports that the Horde was going through a period of internecine infighting, and so he thought that with the Khans distracted, the time was ripe to take out Moscow. And things started well. In the two earlier raids, 1368 and 1370, the Lithuanians had besieged Moscow and managed to burn and pillage the outskirts, but tellingly, they did not succeed in taking the city's new stone Kremlin. In 1372, the Lithuanian army tried for a third time to bring Moscow to heel, but they were stopped near the town of Libutsk by Moscow's forces, and there, after a standoff resulting in a victory of sorts for Dmitri, who was now 22 and in sole charge, talks were held and the Treaty of Lyubutsk was concluded. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And the net-net was that the Lithuanians agreed to cease their aid to Tver, which Dmitri went on to defeat in 1375, and Mikhail II, the Prince of Tver, had to acknowledge Dmitri as elder brother, which must have been galling, to say the least. So why did Algirdas decide that was en enough was enough and just give up? Well, we're not really told, but I suspect that he realised after three attempts that Moscow's forces were now more than ably led by Dmitri, were not going to be a pushover. Plus, he was a long way from home, and by 1372, he was 76 years old, and so a face-saving retreat and a nice treaty must have had its appeal. Meanwhile, out to the east, and as mentioned about a minute ago, the Golden Horde had been severely weakened by internal dynastic struggles. And this was a situation that not only Lithuania was aware of, but Dmitri and his boyars would have been well aware of too. The Grand Prince's aim, therefore, was to try and find a way to very slowly 
and very carefully ease Moscow away from the Horde's influence and gain some semblance of independence, whilst, and this is important, also maintaining the legal right to collect taxes from those principalities that still paid them. Now, frustratingly, and not for the first time, the sources don't tell us exactly what he did or didn't do. But he must have got the balance wrong because we're told that in 1378, a Mongol army sent by a general named Mamai, who had established himself as a bit of a kingmaker or khanmaker, suddenly appeared on Muscovy's borders. So at this point, Dmitri probably had three options. He could have attempted to negotiate his way out of trouble, or he could have retreated behind the Kremlin's walls. But he probably realised that neither of these choices would probably turn out well in the long term, and so he decided that in this case, fortune favoured the brave, and he went for option three, fight. So the two armies met on the banks of the Vosia River, and after the usual brutal slog, Moscow's army emerged victorious. And this was psychologically important because it was the first time that a Rus army had defeated a Mongol force in a full-on mainstream battle. But there must have been part of Dmitri that realised that he'd stirred up a hornet's nest and that the Horde wasn't going to take this defeat lying down. And sure enough, two years later, in September 1380, at a place called Kulikovo near the Don River, battle lines were drawn again between Moscow's forces and a Mongol army led, this time, by Mamai the Khanmaker in person. So Mamai had obviously come to the conclusion that if you wanted something done, then you'd best do it yourself. But this was risky, because his self-assigned role as de facto leader of the Horde depended on him being around to keep an eye on the various claimants to the position of Great Khan. And if he wasn't around, the fear was that all hell could break loose. So why lead the army himself? Why not delegate? Well, mainly because he didn't trust anyone else to get the job done. Plus, he also needed to show both the Muscovites and the Mongols that he was still the man in charge. So here he was, out by the banks of the Don River, hoping to get the battle out of the way quickly, win a decisive victory, teach these upstart Muscovites a lesson, and get back to Sarai to keep some semblance of order there and maintain his position. And so it's probably for this reason, although we can't be certain, that an agreement was reached with Dmitri that instead of a battle, each side would nominate a champion who would fight in single combat to either decide the day or, at the very least, give the army of whichever person won a significant morale boost. So, into the foggy morning gloom came Alexander Pereyasviet and Temir Mirza, each mounted and carrying a spear or lance. So both armies stood in silence as their champions rode to either end of a clearing and then turned and charged full pelt at one another. And then, and you really couldn't make this up, Alexander and Tamir clashed at full force and then a second later both fell from their horses stone cold dead. So after a few seconds of stunned paralysis, the armies charged at each other. After the initial clashes, the Mongols gradually started to wear the roost down. However, Dmitri had an ace up his sleeve, because he had kept back a unit of cavalry who right at the last minute he unleashed, and they smashed into the Mongols' flank, 
and the rout was on. After the battle, Mamai managed to make it back to Sarai, but his position was weakened by the defeat, and he was soon ousted by a rival general named Toktamish. A Lithuanian force, led by Algirdas' son, Jogaila, who had hoped to invade Moscow whilst Dmitri was occupied, hastily retreated as soon as the news of the Muscovite victory at Kulikovo reached him. And Dmitri, who was both injured and exhausted, slowly made his way back to Moscow. And it's from this moment on that he is remembered by the nickname Donskoy, or Of the Don, although whether he actually was in his own lifetime is unknown. But he had no time to enjoy his enhanced military prowess or his new nickname because even though they had suffered two major defeats, the Mongols were not going to take this insubordination, insubordination lying down. And two years later, in 1382, Toktamish, at the head of a large army and reportedly with the help from a certain Tamerlane, managed to overrun Moscow and re-establish the Horde's rule and get Dmitri to re-pledge his loyalty to the Mongols. Three years later, in 1385, and with things in Muscovy nice and calm, Toktamish's attention was drawn to the southeast towards Azerbaijan, and he led a campaign against his former ally Tamerlane, something which, as I mentioned before, we'll, we'll take a look at in the next episode. So with the Khan off campaigning, Dmitri Donskoy spent his remaining years quietly collecting the Mongol taxes and extending Moscow's territory by annexing large stretches of the mixed steppe and forest hinterland that lay to his north and east. He died in 1389, and like one of his famous ancestors, Alexander Nevsky, would become a saint and a Russian hero named after a battle by a river. But most importantly, he would be remembered as the first of the Grand Princes who started the long fight back against the Tartar yoke. And something else happened, and this is significant. He was the first Grand Prince since the Mongol invasion in 1240 to bequeath his titles to his son without consulting the Khan. But this reputation didn't immediately come to the fore, because on the surface not a lot had changed. Yes, he'd stuck it to the Mongols a couple of times and the Lithuanians would think twice before attacking Moscow again. But the Golden Horde was still in charge, Novgorod was still largely independent, and the southern and western Rus principalities were increasingly under the influence of the Lithuanians. But history and reputations are funny things, because the general consensus now, and spoiler alert, is that Dmitri's reign, and specifically the Battle of Kulikovo, were the key turning or tipping points that ended the overlordship of the Golden Horde. It's hard to see why this was the case from where we currently are in 1389, but perhaps we should bear in mind Zhu Enlai's apocryphal words. Now supposedly, Zhu, who was the Premier of China from 1949 to 1976, was asked by a Western journalist at some point in the early 70s what the impacts of the French Revolution had been. And remember, that had taken place in 1789. And his answer was, it's too soon to tell. And I'm not sure what that proves, but it's one of my favourite quotes, 
and I'm sure it's got some relevance here. Anyway, let's end things there for now. Next time, we'll be focusing on the fascinating Timur Gurkhani, aka Tamerlane or Timur the Lame, who will be an important player in our story. Plus, we'll be covering the life and times of Dmitry Donskoy's son, Vasily, and seeing how he managed to run things from the city on the Moskva River. And of course, that will involve his relationships with the usual suspects, the Horde, Lithuania and Novgorod. So until then, look after yourselves, keep your head down, your chin up, and I'll see you all soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.